We are going to be looking at James chapter 4, actually chapter 3 is where we're going to start. If you want to turn there with me. I'm going to read through the text that we are covering to kind of get a, a big picture of where we're going. James chapter 3 at verse 13, we read, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exists, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure, that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covenant and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. Yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your own pleasures, adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he who gives I'm sorry, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Let's pray. Father, this morning, these are hard words for us to hear, yet gracious ones. It is always by your grace that you expose the sin in our hearts that's causing disorder and destruction in our lives. You expose it not to beat us down, but to remind us of who we are and who you are for us. So I ask, Lord, would you move in our hearts? Cause us now, Lord, to not to listen to these words and to think of others as we so often do, but to hear your word and examine ourselves. By your grace, through your spirit, Lord, I ask that you would open our eyes to our own selfishness, to our own frailties, to our own weakness for the purpose of sanctifying us from our own sin that we would not be at war with others or war with you, but we would submit ourselves to you and draw near to you as you draw near to us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this time you have blessed us with this morning. We pray this all in Jesus' holy name. Amen. You're selfish. These were the words that a very good friend shared to me about six years ago. They were unexpected words because I had just finished 
explaining to him that all of the things that I do as I pour out my life for others, as I pour over scripture to teach every week on a Sunday, as just lay my life down and I examine the word and I study so hard and I craft all of my messages and i just seeking for them to be perfect. And, and not only that, in my own life with my family and my wife, I, I just do all of these things. I just, I'm just laying my life down and it's, it's a struggle and it's painful and, and I'm growing weary in all of the efforts and as I'm going on and on. This good friend of mine who was a pastor and a, was a mentor of mine in Colorado, he said those words. He said, well, you know what your problem is? And I was thinking he was going to say any number of things except for, your problem is you're selfish. And I'm thinking, did you not just hear what I said? I'm not selfish. I'm laying my life down for others. And he said, yeah, but think about what you're saying and think about how you're saying it. Everything you're saying, it's not about them. It's about you. That's why you're doing what you're doing. That's why every message has to be perfect. That's why you write out every single word and every illustration has to be just so. Why? Because it's about you. The reason you're laying down your life for your wife and your kids in this way is because this is exactly what you're comfortable in doing. It's about you. It's about your own self-glorification, your own self-preservation. I saw it as self-denial. But he saw it as something completely different. And it was by God's grace that he said these words to me. It was the best counsel I had ever received. And I share this with you because that's what our text is about this morning. It's about our struggle with our own selfish desires. And it's about God's response to them. It's about God's wise counsel to us as his children. But before we really step into that, it's good to understand what the book of James is all about. The book itself is about testing our faith. This is how he starts off in James 1. We read these words. Uh, he says in this very well-known section, he says, My brother, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. This is the point of James' letter to the church. is to let us know your faith is being tested. It's being tested by God on a regular basis. He's testing it by his grace. You see, anybody can say, I believe. I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe that he died on the cross. I believe that he died for me. I can... I can Grab a kid out of the youth ministry right now who maybe this is their first time in church and hand them $5 if I had $5. I could hand them $5 and say, hey, stand up in front of the church and say these words and they would repeat them for the money. Anybody could say, I believe. Even James says, the demons believe and they tremble. But that is not real faith. Jesus spoke like this. He said in Matthew 7 at the end of his Sermon on the Mount, he said, my kingdom is going to look like a kingdom filled with those who pursue me and do what I've called them to do. And they're not, it's not going to be just some external work. It's going to be something that happens from deep in their heart. And there are going to be those who will appear to be following me. They will make the appearance of it. But in that last day, they're going to stand for me and I'm going to say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. 
You weren't pursuing me for me. You were pursuing me for you. Your works had nothing to do with me. And God says these words to us not to beat us up, but as a picture of grace for us to know what it is to truly follow him, to live out lives of faithfulness. Those who have truly been brought from darkness into God's glorious light, they prove their faith, James says, through their faithfulness. They prove their faith through their faithfulness. They're not saved by their faithfulness. They just prove that God has done a work in their heart, that he has separated them from the world around them. They don't give to the poor for the reason of self-glorification. They give to the poor because God has given to them the poor. They don't tame their tongues, or they don't tame their tongues for their own selfish reasons. They tame their tongues because they want God to be glorified and they know the sin in their hearts can cause their tongue to be a matchstick that destroys the world around them. So they love and submit themselves to God because God is at work in them. And God says, when you see those things happening, know that you are mine. Know it beyond a shadow of a doubt. This is why works matter. This is why what we do matters. Not to prove to anybody else who we are, to prove to ourselves that God is at work in us. What we say and what we do says a lot about who we are and especially who we belong to. It says so much when we fall and struggle with sin that we don't run from God, we run to him. It it lets us know in our hearts, he's my father. I'm not going to anybody else. And God says, yes, This is how I use the tests and the trials and the temptations in your life. I use them to remind you of who you are, to reveal to you what's inside of you. This is what what a test means. In John 6, Jesus says, I'm saying these things or these things are happening because I want to test you. I want to test you because I see the faith inside of you. And if I bring you through this hard test... Your faith is going to be revealed. Not to me, I already know it's there. To you. So you can rejoice in the same things that I rejoice in. This is a tough text, but it's a good text. It's hard to hear, but it's given to us for the very best reasons. It brings us some of the greatest benefits we can enjoy in life. As we start in this passage, we see chapter 3 at verse 13, a very important question that James asks. He says, who is wise in understanding among you? Who is wise in understanding among you? Who has wisdom? After James asks this question, He responds in a very interesting way. We may start to think, who's wise? We may ask that question. You look at a person and you see what they say and they have all the right answers. You look at that person and you say, look, by by how they explain things, they're so wise. And God says, that's not how we see wisdom. His answer is this, who is wise? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. He says, wisdom is revealed not by what you share with your mouth, but by what you do with your life. By what you do with your life, this is how we see what wisdom is. Wisdom is knowing what the best thing is and knowing the best way to get there. And God says, you want to see what wisdom is, watch what people do, not, by what, not what they say. That's how you know if somebody is wise or not. 
He says, let him show by good conduct. This word conduct, as he uses it, James is envisioning an entire lifestyle that manifests that we have wisdom. An entire lifestyle, this, con- this word conduct is saying, when you look at the totality of a person's life, what they do, not just on a Sunday morning, what they do, not just when people are around, everything about their lives, look at it. If good works are there and if they're produced from the heart, God says that's where you find real wisdom, not just in understanding things about wisdom, wisdom that flows from deep inside, wisdom that comes from the Holy Spirit at work inside of a person. And this wisdom is on display, specifically, he says, in our meekness. In our meekness, wisdom is shown. We've talked a lot about meekness in our house over the years with our kids. Starts off with the oldest one, with Haley, as she grew older and bigger and stronger, and then she had younger siblings and more younger siblings and more younger siblings. She, was, she would start to do things, and she realized, I'm bigger and stronger than those beneath me, than these kids beneath me. I can force them to do what I want them to do, because how can they stop me? I'm so much bigger and stronger than them. She didn't think it through like that, but that's what her actions were like. I can trick them. I have greater mental capabilities. As a four-year-old, this two-year-old doesn't understand what I'm doing. I I can trick her. I can manipulate her. And we started at a young age with each one of them as they got bigger, starting to explain what meekness is. Meekness is pictured in Jesus Christ being the all-powerful creator of all things. And we would ask them, Does he use his brain and his arms, his strength to tear you down or to build you up? And even as a four, five, six-year-old, they'd be like, to build me up? That's what meekness is. When you're meek, you use your strength to encourage others rather than to take from them what you want. God says, this is what godly wisdom is. It is meek. It uses strength to build and edify others. We know this is true because when you look at verse 14, you see this sharp contrast. He says, but if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. James says that godly wisdom is Christ-like meekness and is not filled with bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. It's not self-seeking. It doesn't look at a situation and say, I see an angle that this other person doesn't see. Uh, this person is, we're in this interaction with one another, and I know how to use my words better than them. Therefore, I can win this argument if I use the intelligence, the intelligence that God has given me. I can get something for myself out of this. I can make myself feel better about me, even at the cost of tearing them down, if I use my words the right way. James says, that is not godly wisdom. He says you'd be better off keeping your mouth shut as believers than saying anything at that point because you're lying against the truth. He goes on and he says this wisdom specifically does not descend from above but it is earthly, sensual. He says it's demonic. He goes on and he says, for where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and evil, evil things are there. This contrast here is heavy and so are the words because it lets us know there's no gray area here. It's not like 
here's the line, and over here is Christ. It's not like, you know, here's this middle area, and Christ is over here. And when we do things his way, and then, it's, then it's good. And, and then there's this middle area. And over here, this is this demonic area. But I can kind of float in the middle, right? I can kind of coast along. Not necessarily good, not necessarily bad. God's in his word says no. When you're not over here, you are over there. You are swimming in the realm of demons, of Satan. You were following no longer after God. You were following after Satan himself when you use the gifts that God has blessed you with for your own jealousy, for your own selfish ambition. And this is what worldly wisdom does. It has as its foundation one thing, me. You got to look out for number one. It's all about me. If I don't take care of myself, who will take care of myself? This is what worldly wisdom says. And God says, don't have any part of it. Don't pursue solely what you want when you want it. Don't live like that because that's not how I've called you to live. That's not the model that I've given you. Christ says, I came down to this earth to show you something completely different. I know you would be tricked. I know you would be deceived by it. I see what's in your heart. I see the selfishness that's there. You look around and that sounds like good wisdom. And temporarily, I want to let you know it is good wisdom. If you always walk around looking out for yourself, using your gifts to bless yourself, there will be joy that comes with it. There will be temporary satisfaction that comes with it. And God says, don't give in to that lie. It's so tricky. It's so sneaky. It's so powerful. Don't give in to it. What it does is it, it puts you in this place of when you look at others, when you look at your boss or your coworkers or your kids or your spouse or whoever it might be, a friend, some other type of relationship that you have, you look at them and, and then things don't go exactly the way you want them to go. And then you see this person now as your enemy. Your actions have hindered my ease in life. You've, I was going in this direction and my day was going fine. And everything was happy and then I came home from work and you weren't in a good mood and you weren't as excited as I was and now you're bringing me down. And now you're questioning what I did the other day and oh, I was so happy you are my enemy now. It's selfishness. And we will do most anything to knock that person out of the way to bring ourselves back to the place of ease and comfort, the ease and comfort that we enjoy, that we want for ourselves. We're not thinking about them. We're thinking about ourselves. This mindset is so very natural to us. It comes to us so easy and it comes to us so early. Anybody in this room who has kids, did any of us have to teach our kids the word mine? It's like Finding Nemo. I love those little seagulls when they're sitting up there, mine, 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 mine. That's how our kids are. They walk around. It's like they come out and they start saying words and it's so neat and so special and oh, they're so great. Like, I love to, I can't wait to hear just what's going on in their minds until you find out what's going on in their minds. Mine, that's mine. It's mine. It's, it's shocking how how it comes to us so quickly and so early. And then we get a little bit older, and you know what happens? That selfishness translates into other ways. Uh, sometimes the Guastafaros will watch Nolan, our four-year-old, and Batty, Sebastian is, is uh, they call him Batty. Uh, Sebastian is about two, and Nolan, when I picked him up the other day, I pick him up, and, and he sits down in the car, and he starts just telling me this story. Daddy... I had this toy. And Batty just came over and he just took it from me. And he was like, this is mine. 
And I, I was like, I don't, know, I don't even know what to do about that. How could he do something so horrible? He doesn't say this, but this is what's going on in his heart. I was so happy with that toy, and then he took it for me, and he ruined my happiness. And then I sat there having to explain to him, yeah, that's what you were like when you were two. That's what you're like now. You know how when your sisters have something you want, and you're like, that's mine. It just comes so easy to us. It's so natural. And sadly, this mindset is from Satan himself. And where these traits are a pattern of a person's life, destruction follows in its wake. When a person is consumed by this level of unchecked sin, it's like a wake behind a boat. It just ripples drowns everything behind them. This is what we read in verse 16. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. Destruction follows in the wake of selfishness. Obviously, I'm saying this in a funny way earlier with children, but We all know people like this. Maybe you are a person like this. If I've said this many times, if if struggle and strife follow you wherever you go, if every relationship you have seems to be characterized by pain and struggling and wrestling and, and difficulty, let me tell you something, and I don't say this gleefully. There is one common denominator in all of those relationships and guess who it is it's you you're the common denominator and the people around you are in your wake of selfishness as we move on wisdom from god is radically different and others centered He says in verse 17, But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This is just easily seen. I can can think about I can think about myself and, and coming home from a difficult situation where I'm frustrated and I can come home and start interacting with my kids or my wife and I can deal with them in a selfish way and create destruction. They could have a fine day and I show up and I'm angry and I'm not thinking about them, I'm just thinking about me and I cause destruction to erupt in the house and then suddenly, you know, I'm, I'm arguing with Carrie and the kids are arguing with each other and there's now this, all this strife and destruction and, and God says, if you handled my wisdom by the power of my spirit, that would not be the result. Your life wouldn't look like that. It'd be filled with purity. That word purity has this idea of truth in it. Whose truth? Not my truth. God's truth. It would have the gospel in hand. And it would diffuse destruction rather than inflame it. It would be gentle. It wouldn't be harsh. Because it would be this constant reminder of the cross before us. And this is how I respond to other people, and this is how I respond to Christ, and how does he respond to me? With gentleness, with kindness. How can I not respond to others in that same way? How can I not be reasonable? I don't have to win every single argument at the sake of tearing others down. Why? Because I have Christ. I don't want to win an argument. I want to win a person. I want to win a heart. I want to be an example. His gospel, his wisdom makes us reasonable. It gives us a heart of impartiality. 
This idea of impartiality puts, puts us out of the center and God in the forefront of everything. This is what this word is trying to convey to us. Without partiality means that God is my heart at highest priority and everything else comes second to that. Uh, I remember counseling with a family in Colorado that I'm very close with and they were struggling with a relationship. And as we sat down, and I knew their daughter really well, and, and uh, as we sat down the first time we talked, it was this very tense situation. And I said, I want you to understand one thing before we start talking. I am not on your side. I'm also not on her side. And I don't mean this in a psychological babble way. I mean this in a very specific way. I'm on God's side. I don't want just what you want, and I don't want just what she wants. I want what he wants. That's impartiality. He comes first. He is the main focus in every interaction. And when he is, purity and gentleness and reasonableness and mercy follow along. These characteristics, James says, paves the way for peace. Why? Because it follows the model of the prince of peace. Everything I just said, we all who have ever read scripture can think and look and be like, I can see this. These are the words of Christ. This is what he says. This is how he interacts with me and everybody else. He is the Prince of Peace. This is where the gospel leads us. It leads us to godly wisdom and it leads us to peace. Peace with God and peace with others. This is what peace is. It puts everything in its proper order in light of who God is. In light of what the gospel has done. When our eyes are focused on him, then everything else falls in its proper place beneath that. And with that, hostility is removed peace comes. This is exactly where the text is going. When you move on to James chapter, chapter 4, there's a chapter break there, but just remove it out of your mind. He says at the end of chapter 3, now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace, he says. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you murder. And covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you war. Now I read that in more of like the ESV translation because I think it properly fits the two together. There's a, there's a fact about what's going in inside of you, on inside of you, and then there's a result. And so that's why they translate it that way if you're reading the ESV. In the King James, they put a period there, but I think it properly conveys the text, the context when it says, you lust and do not have, so therefore you murder. You covet, you want, and you can't get it. So you fight and you war with those around you. War is always on our doorstep, James is saying. It's always right there because you're struggling with selfishness. You're struggling with wanting something that you can't have, so then you're lashing out. What is the source of your quarreling? As Matt used to say, who has two thumbs and is the source of quarreling? This guy. It's us. What do we have a tendency to do? Instead of pointing at us, what do we do naturally and very quickly? It's her. It's him. It's my boss. It's my coworker. It's my friend. It's my kids. It's all of you. You're in my way. It's your fault. I'm struggling like this because of you. It's you. It started from the very beginning in the garden. What does Adam say to God? It's the woman you gave me. It's not me. It's you guys. You've wronged me. But it's not about them, it's about us. We fight because we're selfish. 
We are selfish. Every, okay, 99.9% of your quarrels in your life can be directly linked in one way or another to you. Don't shoot the messenger. If you have a problem, bring it up with God because this is God's words, not mine. I would rather say something much easier than that. I would rather hear something much easier than that. God says, it's you. It's your struggle. We act out selfishly and hurt others and we fight when they wrong us. It's what we do when when my friend comes to me and has done something wrong against me and doesn't see it and just starts lashing out against me in some way. If I add fuel to the fire, whose fault is that? It's mine. How should I respond? There's another way to go. There's a Christ-like way that looks at the person who's sinning against me and Instead of sitting there going, oh, who do they think they are? Don't they understand? Do you know what pain you're causing me right now? Do you really think I need this right now on top of everything else? Instead of responding like that, how Christ-like is it to look at that person and go, there's sin in you and my heart breaks for it. What can I do for you? What can I do for you? How can I pray for you? How can I love you? How can I encourage you? You're in sin and you're struggling and I can see the pain written all over you and your sin is the result of your own sin and what's going on inside of you. My heart breaks for you. Let me help you. Let me lay down my life for you. I don't have to prove that I'm right. I want to serve you. Where does fighting go? in that situation. Instead of putting up our dukes and getting ready for the fight when we open our hands and just embrace in the midst of the pain and the struggle, how Christ-like is that? This is why a gentle, wrath, a gentle answer turns away wrath. This is what God is calling us to because this is what Christ has done for us. I have no doubt most every single person in this room has reviled God in some way for the situation that's happening in your life. How does he respond to you? Does he point a finger and put up his fist? You better hope he doesn't because that's a fight you can't win. He conquers our evil with his good. He does it selflessly rather than selfishly. And he gives us a model to follow. James uses powerful words here. Powerful words. We're not going to get to the good part yet. I promise we will get there at some point. But he uses powerful words. He says, you lust and do not have, so you murder You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you war. He uses the word murder, and you may think, I've never murdered anyone. Seems a little over the top there in what he's saying. But let me explain it this way. When somebody gets in the way of your ease of life and you respond with bitterness, You become enraged at the struggle and the fight that they are bringing to you that you have to deal with this right now and it builds up enough to where you attack them verbally. What are you saying inside of your heart? Really, what are you saying? What's going on in you is that you're saying in a sense to this person, I wish you didn't even exist. Because if you weren't here right now, my life would be easier. Just go away. We won't say die, but don't we mean that in a sense? I wish you didn't exist. 
terrifying words. Maybe you've said those words. Maybe you've heard those words. They are graphic. They are awful. And they are demonic, God says. To have this type of sentiment, this type of mindset, I should say, in your head, is to side yourself with Satan himself. Because godly wisdom acts out in a completely different way. At the moment of conflict, godly wisdom stops saying, what about me? And it starts saying, what about them? What about you? This is what godly wisdom does. But what should we do when our desires are not met? Because we all end up in that place. How should we respond when things are frustrating, when things are hard? It's not sin to be disappointed, to be sad by a turn of events. So what should we do with that sadness so that it doesn't turn to sin? The response comes as we move forward. He says at the end of verse 2, you do not have because you do not ask. Do we take our struggles, our pain, our needs, or even our selfish inclinations to him first? Do we follow the model of Philippians 4 that we love to quote over and over and over again? Where God says, come to me, and I'm paraphrasing. Come to me with all of your desires, all of your supplications, all of your needs. Come to me with those things. Don't look inside of yourself. The answer's not there. Come to me, and I will provide you with a peace that goes beyond understanding. Come to me. God says, you do not have because you do not ask. And probably the reason you're not asking is because you're filled with sin. You know, in that moment, I don't want what God wants I want what I want. I don't want to come to him because then he's going to change my heart and then I've got to lay down all this selfishness that's in me and I don't want to lay down the selfishness that's in me. If you've read ahead, you know why I'm saying that because this is what he says. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your own pleasures. James is saying, you don't have what you ask for because you're still filled with selfishness. And there could be a very big problem that comes as a result of praying with selfish desires. Because what happens in those moments if you ask for something out of your own selfish inclinations and God responds with, out of his own grace for you, no, no, And you don't let go of your sin. A second ago, you were at war with that person because you weren't getting what you wanted. Now you're crying out to God in a selfish manner and you're not getting at what you wanted. Now who are you at war with? God himself. You've chose sides against him. How do I know this is what James means? Look at the next four words. You adulterers and adulteresses. This is what he says in verse four. This heart that so easily creeps into our thinking, this mindset is the same, God says, as you joining yourself with the other side, with Satan himself. This is us committing adultery against God. Wow. These are hard, hard, hard words. Because there is no gray area when we wage war against God because of our own selfish desires. It is difficult to hear. 
but it's words that are given to us out of God's love and grace for us. Because when you hear these things, don't hear them with a pointing finger that says, you, this is what you're like, because that's not why he's saying them to us. He's saying them with the same heart that I said earlier. You're my child. Don't go in that way. I love you. I don't want you committing adultery. I don't want you siding yourself against me. Turn your back on all that stuff and come to me where peace and joy are found, where unity and intimacy with me is to be had. This is exactly where the text goes. We see the wonderful grace of God arriving as he doesn't leave us in the place of you adulterer. He doesn't stop there. He says, after he says, do you not know the friendship with the world is enmity with God? He says, whoever therefore wants to be friend with the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealousy, jealously. I'm not going to say much about that just because I don't really know what that means exactly. If you've ever read anything on it, there's, it's, it's funny when you start studying these things. Little verses like this, people write commentaries on, this is why I think this means this. People have sat in a room and argued vigorously, how should I translate this? Because if you look at things like New King James or the ESV or the NIV or all these different translations, they have a tendency to see them in one way or the other. The spirit is the spirit of God yearning over you jealously or the spirit is the spirit of man who throughout history has proven to lust selfishly and jealously and in envy over everything that they look at. And we wonder, well, which, which way do we go with that? Well, let's, let's see where it says in the Bible. Turn to Second Hezekiah 14, 23, where it quotes this. No, it doesn't quote that. It doesn't say it. This is why I lean, and I lean very, very lightly, that when this is talking about, what this is talking about is the spirit of man is constantly yearning enviously and jealously, jealously for the things that they can't have. The reason why I think that, because it fits in the context. There's a contrast that games go back and forth. The wisdom of the world, the wisdom of God. And you hear it here. He says, the spirit, if this is the way it's translated, and it would help my message if you would just agree with me. (laughs) The spirit of man who dwells in us yearns jealously in an evil way for all of the things that they can't have. And it's been like that from the very beginning. But God, but God, God has the greatest but in all the world. Yes, I said that. I don't mean it irreverently. This is just a conjunction. He has the greatest buts in all of the world. You read this, you read the text in scripture over and over again and it just sounds so awful and it should because man is so awful and it always transitions with this wonderful phrase but God he does something in response to our yearning for evil it says but he gives more grace Therefore, he says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. But God, he extinguishes all of our warring by pouring out his amazing grace upon our lives. How awesome is that? I've laid out a lot of heavy things, or God has laid out a lot of heavy things in this text. And then he says, don't forget this, but me, I'm at work. Yes, you are filled with a raging war that wants to destroy those around you. But when you come to me, I give grace. 
I give more grace. I overcome all of your sin with my grace. I resist the proud. If you want to stay in that place of selfishness, I will be far from you. But if you draw to me, I am going to pour out my grace upon you and change how you think and feel. I'm going to make you a completely different person. You may not look like that all the time because you're going to struggle, but I'm going to do something inside of you. I'm going to resurrect the death wake that is swimming behind you, and I'm going to pour out my grace upon you. And with that, our Lord blesses us. Why? One, because he is after our greatest good, as I've already said. He wants the very, very best for us. So he pours out his grace upon us. And not only that, he does it because he, in it, he becomes the greatest model for us to follow. So that when we do come home from work or we do have that tense phone call or when our kids don't do exactly what we want them to do at the time we want them to do it in the way that we want them to do it, we don't respond with, how dare you come against me? We respond with broken hearts that say, you're coming against him. Please don't do that. Don't go against him. I want the very best for you. He has poured out his grace upon me and he will pour out his grace upon you. Turn from your evil ways. He's given us a model to follow, a model of love and gentleness and understanding that we can follow and lead others down that same path. Now, inside of you, there may be an excitement in hearing the words that I'm saying, and I only point that out because I want you to be excited for the next opportunity that you have when somebody wrongs you. I want you to be excited about it. The next time somebody wrongs you, remember these words and remember, I now have an opportunity to forgive you and love you in the way that I've been loved. I can't wait. I can't wait till somebody wrongs me. Now, don't get me wrong, nobody talks like that. I don't talk like that either, but we should, shouldn't we? Shouldn't we? The opportunity to forgive the way that we've forgiven, forgiven, to love the way that we've been loving, to love to be, bring peace into a situation the same way that Christ has brought peace into our lives. We should be excited about it. We should be looking for the opportunities to follow his model. And again, I say all these things because this is, again, is exactly where the text goes in verse seven. It says, therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. God says, I want you to do something. I'm gonna give you grace. It's yours. It's already been secured by Christ. It's yours. But as you enter into the struggle, which you will do, submit yourself to me. This word is is a word that, it's two words put together in the Greek that says, put yourself under my authority and resist Satan. There's a clear picture that comes to mind there. It's the picture of Jesus Christ. Christ became a man in obedience to his father. And as he walked this earth, he resisted Satan. You think about Luke 4 and what he did as he was walking through the desert. And, and I, remember, I remember Don, I don't, he might not remember this, but years ago when I worked at Blue Lighter Bible, he came and he did a devotion on that text specifically in Luke 4 and how it impacted his life. And it never has stopped to impact my life too see Christ being baptized in Luke 3. And the voice comes down and says, you are the son of the living God. And then he is drawn out by the Holy Spirit to be tested, to be tempted by Satan. And what does Satan do? If you are the son of God, he questions the very words of God. And temptation comes. Turn the rock into bread Take the world, it's yours if you just submit yourself to me. Jump off this cliff. 
The angels are supposed to protect you. All the temptations come, and they come if you really are the Son of God. And Christ resists. He resists Satan. And what do we see in that text? Immediately, Satan flees. He flees. And now here in James 4, this picture is being stirred up in our own mind. Where James is reminding us, you are a child of God. He's done that in you. Now he's testing you. You're sinning and you're struggling and you're striving. And, but know this, when you put yourself under the authority of God and you resist Satan, he will flee from you because you are my child. You're mine. When Satan comes or when your own flesh comes and, and echoes the whispers of Satan in your heart and it's trying to trick you and pull you in this direction of selfishness and it's like, wouldn't it just be so good to like sting that person? Like just get them back with your words? Wouldn't it be so great to just fudge this or do that just so you could get what you want? You want it, you deserve it. You've had a hard life, you deserve that. It should just be yours, just go get it. Satan comes and, he, and, and your flesh comes and... Those lies are whispered into your head. God says, submit yourself to me and resist him and he will flee from you. He will flee. And James isn't done there because as I was already intimating, neutrality before God is not the final outcome here. This is not what James wants us to walk away from thinking of. You're just, you're just neutral before God now. No, he says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Draw near to him and he will draw near to you. This is it's a necessary promise for us to understand because we can sometimes indulge our weaknesses in the midst of the test and say, see, God has deserted me once again. God, why are you allowing this to happen? I don't want anything to do with this anymore. Have you been there? I'm so tired. I'm just so tired. I don't want to walk this path anymore. Where are you? Have you forgotten me? The Holy Spirit through James is saying, I don't want you to end in that place. I'm not, and I'm not ashamed of your weaknesses, God is saying. You draw near to me in your weakness and I'm gonna draw near to you in my strength. I'm allowing all of these things to happen so that you can walk in intimacy with me. Again, this is the point of why James is writing these words. He says in, at the beginning of the letter, blessed is the man who endures temptation for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. God allows these things hap to happen because he is after a relationship with us, an intimacy with us. He allies, allows tests and trials for the very best reason. For us to be closer to him. And we get closer, he says, as you lay down your own selfish desires. And then at the end of verse eight, he says, you cleanse your hands, purify your hearts. Cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. God wants fellowship, but to achieve the highest level of intimacy, we must change. This is what he is after. That's right. God says, nearness to me means your war with double-mindedness needs to come to an end don't keep walking down this path of selfishness. You can't follow the wisdom of the world and follow my wisdom at the same time. It doesn't work that way. Give yourself wholly over to me. Draw near to me. I will draw near to you. Cleanse yourself with, from sin and we will walk together in intimacy.
the end of the war looks like verse 9. It says, Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. What that's saying here is not that everything is hopeless. I'm such a sinner. I can never cleanse myself. I can never do any of these things. That's not what he's saying. He's saying something very different from that. When he says joy turning to mourning, and to lay down, as he's saying, is to lay down your short-sighted temporary joy that comes from your sinful selfishness and repent. Let the joy that comes with you temporarily seeking after your own desires, let that joy turn to mourning as you repent over your sin. As you are humbled when you see who you really are. Do you hear Christ's words to all of our hearts this morning? There's joy that comes with sin. And he's saying, let that joy turn to mourning. Be humbled by the reality of your own struggle. And I'm going to do something. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. And he will lift you up. Humble yourselves. The tests are hard. Nobody likes them. It's like uh, Tom Hanks in League of Their Own, and he says to the girl baseball player, if it was easy, everybody would do it. (laughs) It tests our heart. We know that to be true. God's testing at times can feel unbearable. And I mean that. I'm not saying any of this, and I don't want you to walk away from this. I don't want you to be blinded by everything that God is saying here by thinking, well, you don't understand what it is that I am going through, what my struggle looks like. Believe me, I know how scary it is to surrender, to put a tender heart into the hands of another, another person who can hurt you so easily. Why do I know that? Because I'm a selfish sinner. And I'm married to a selfish sinner. And I have kids who I love who are selfish sinners. And I'm a part of a church filled with selfish sinners. We all live in this experience. And it's hard. It's hard. God says, I understand that. And I want you to do something. Die to yourself. Die to yourself. As Paul Tripp says, if dying to yourself, if if dying to yourself is easy, you're probably doing it wrong. (laughs) Dying to yourself is not easy. God understands that. So he says, trust me. Trust me. Follow me. Follow my model. When you humble yourselves in my sight, I will lift you up. It is not easy, but much like most of the things in life, the best stuff comes after we faithfully walk the hardest trials, the hardest tests. Six years ago, two simple words of counsel to me was, you're selfish, and they were hard to hear. I didn't sit there the moment he said that to me. I'm like, you're absolutely right. I immediately was like, no. And guess what I did the day after that? No. And the day after that? No. That's not true. Until I finally humbled myself. Until through the power of the Holy Spirit, God humbled me. And the words sank in and my heart was broken for all that I had done. And as I was humbled, Christ lifted me up and he changed my life. It's made all relationships around me better. It's not that it's a struggle because by, I mean, there's four people sitting over there who live in the same house with me and know that I am far from handling all of this. In fact, they may go home and be like reminding me of this message over and over again, but but walking in step with Christ is the greatest place we could possibly be in. 
And God says, I will lift you up. I will give you the strength to bear and endure and not just endure, but to persevere as you keep your eyes focused on me and it will bring you a life that is beyond comparison. Follow me, Christ says, trust me. I will work. I will succeed because that's what I do. Let's pray now to him for that. Father, we thank you for these words these words of grace, they are hard words to be sure. They could be painful words to hear. But Lord, I ask that by the power of your spirit, you would transform lives this morning. That you would bring us all to a place of humbly confessing our own selfishness the destruction that we have left in the wake of our own lives for those around us who we care for and we love and we want to bring to Christ themselves, I ask, Father, that you would humble us and change us and cleanse us and transform us and make us more like Christ. That your name would be exalted. That we would walk in fellowship with you on this day. We thank you, Lord, for your grace that comes to us more and more every day, that forgives us and sustains us. Use us now for your glory as we leave this place. We pray this all in Jesus' holy name, amen.